Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling. With me as always is Brandon Odo. Hello. And we have a special guest with us today. Dr. Seth Truger is an emergency physician at Northwestern in Chicago. He's also the digital media inter- editor at JAMA Network Open. And you can find him on Twitter as MD Aware. Welcome, Seth. Well, great. Thank- uh, really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. All right. Now, you are coming in to work your shift in the emergency department. And it's a little bit of an odd day. Um, not really a resident there today. They're off in some sort of conference. Um, but there is a, a student with you. So they're going to help you out. But you're probably going to have to be pretty involved. So you're getting settled and you're having some coffee. And um, your student comes by and he says, hey, um, you know, I just saw a patient. Um, he's a 56-year-old male. He's got diabetes, coronary artery disease. Um, he comes in with about three days of just malaise. He's just been feeling tired, sick. He's also got a lot of nausea and he's vomited several times. Um, and then on exam, he's got just diffuse abdominal pain and um, he's really, really quite tender and maybe even a little bit of, of rebound, although I've really seen that before. Um, as he's talking, you're skimming the chart. You see that at triage, uh, he had a temperature of 38.3. His heart rate was 110. His blood pressure was 85 over 40 with a map of about 55. And he was satting 91% on room air. What are the first things coming through your head as you're listening to this story and getting ready to go see this patient? Yeah, I think the first thing is, um, I mean, just while you're talking, hearing vomiting, belly pain, tender, uh, knowing residents aren't there, uh, is this someone I'm going to see pretty quickly or, or, you know, get out of my chair and go go see after a quick chart review, just, uh, you know, get, you know, probably going to need something like a CT, labs, et cetera, and uh, those are soon. So so not going to sit around and talk to the med student for 20 minutes like I'm doing right now. Um, the uh, other thing is as soon as, you know, he's hypotensive, you see the vital signs, uh, that's bad. That gets me out of my chair. It gets me looking at what's going on. Um, I'll be honest, if, if I said my chair, if, if, you know, I was working on my usual academic team and I had a senior resident and they were going to see the patient, I might stay and, and start digging through the chart and find some other information. But but this is somebody where I'm in that mode where I might not be like sweating and, and puckered a little bit, but I would be up in the bed or, you know, in the patient's room doing things, um, getting stuff started. So uh, pinging on the, the sick meter. Yeah. Any yeah, diagnoses flowing through your head? Yeah. I mean, I'm hearing, uh, you know, belly pain and vomiting, um, you know, certainly thinking, you know, clearly could have belly stuff going on, uh, abdominal sepsis, et cetera. Uh, vomiting makes me think, you know, a little less likely to be some of the kind of zebra-y belly stuff, like uh, vascular stuff, aorta, et cetera. Um, but uh, also always vomit, uh, male, especially over 50 um, and kind of sick, makes me think about cardiac stuff. Um, but from just this top line stuff, it doesn't sound too out of the ordinary um, right off the bat. But kind of uh, belly stuff, sepsis seems like the, where the money is with, you know, the, the med student thinking they might be guarding. Are you ordering any tests, treatments before you go and see this patient? Or are you just going to go pop in and see them? Um, I'd probably pop in. I mean, everywhere is a little different. Um, our place is great where the nurse can kind of get basic labs going and are, are really good about getting like a, we do critical care BBG panels, uh, and, which include lactates um, and basic blood, uh, BBG blood gas. Uh, so make sure that's going. Um, I mean, I'm already thinking, am I CTing him? Am I doing, uh, you know, chest x-ray, upright chest x-ray? Um I think that's probably off the bat, this stuff that I'd be thinking about. Okay. So you uh, hop into the room. You take a look. The patient is more or less as billed. They look, uh, they're awake. They look a a bit toxic. Their belly is diffusely tender with a little bit of rigidity. And you do appreciate some guarding if you kind of violently rebound them. Um, You can't really isolate a particular point of tenderness. Um, But as noted, their blood pressure is sort of 80s systolic. Um, now what? You come out of the room, you sit down at a computer, 
What are you clicking on? Um, uh, first thing I'd probably do is uh, my my quick version of all the labs. Uh, you know, CBC Chem, LFTs, Lipase, Lactate, uh, Critical Care Panel. Uh, for me at our shop, that's basically VBG uh, stat electrolytes off the gas. Um, and I order CT on him. Um, probably, I'm assuming IV contrast, uh, unless there's a creatinine problem or, or CKD. I don't think you said there was any heart failure, right? Or other volume overload issues. Coronary artery disease, he's known about, but never any heart failure. Never okay. Heart failure. So I would order two liters of fluid off the bat. Um, my general stance is everyone either needs no fluid or more than one liter of fluid. Um, and I think that kind of gets people into gear a little bit too. Um, you know, it's not just like, oh, there's a guy getting some fluid. I mean, the guy's frankly hypotensive. Nobody's missing this, I think. Um, getting EKG too. It sounds like the money's in the belly again with that uh, impressive exam. Um, but EKGs are non-invasive and, and, you know, fairly simple. So if you had nothing else back yet, um, you would still go ahead for the CAT scan or would you wait for anything? I feel like I'm missing something from what you're, the way you're saying that. No, I just workflow wise. Um, yeah, I'd probably scan him. Uh, if the, I mean, I've got a pretty low threshold to do a point of care ultrasound for, for you know, like basic fast right of a quadrant stuff. But really, in this case, I don't think that's going to be my answer. Um, and without something special like trauma or liver history or or question about ascites, um, I don't think that'd be helpful. I mean, I think on oral wards, I might do an upright chest x-ray, but I feel, and realistically, that'll probably happen because someone would ask for that. But I feel like that's not where the money is here. I feel like, I don't know, the sensitivity or the yield of an upright chest x-ray is so low that it's, that for me, I feel like I'm treating the M&M, not the patient. Okay. Uh, so CT, abdomen, pelvis with contrast? Yeah. Okay. You send him off for that um, and you, you grab some labs as well. Um, uh, a few, some of it filters back in while he's still in radiology. Labs are remarkable mostly for a leukocytosis, a white count of about 14. Um, his creatinine is 1.5. Um, the light pace was unremarkable. His H and H is okay. Uh, patient gets back and you pull up the scan. And as you're skimming through, you notice, um, the gallbladder looks like it's dilated and thickened. There's a little bit of stranding around it and maybe a little bit of free fluid. And as you're looking and saying, wow, that kind of looks like cholecystitis, you get a call from radiology and they say, Hey, this kind of looks like cholecystitis. Patient has got two liters of fluid. What's your fluid of choice? Um, so I, I don't have very strong feelings on uh, saline versus uh, ringers. Uh, those are my two main ones. That's what we have in our shop. Um, I feel like with all respect to the people who do great research on this stuff, I feel like a lot of it, like for most of the patients, it probably doesn't matter that much. Um, that being said, if it's all the same to get ringers instead of saline and somebody who's sick and going to get a few liters of fluid, I'll usually do LR. Um, but for run-of-the-mill patients, I'm doing saline. Okay. Um, this, this, oh, sorry. I'll say this guy sounds a little surgical and also kind of sick and we'll get a few liters, so I might do LR. But I, I don't. Th I feel like of everything we do, outside of some like DKA where they're doing a ton, um, it's not a top priority for me. Um, patient has gotten the two liters of whatever. Um, their pressure is now ninety over forty-five, and their maps just below sixty. Um, what's your approach here? When are you going to stop with fluids? Is there a point where you're going to pressors? Is it a number? Um, yeah, I mean, I feel like. I don't have a hard number. Once I decide that the patient's sick and hypotensive, I'm basically just looking at MAP. Um, and MAP is 65 is, you know, where I'm I'm happy and lap, MAP of under 60 is where I'm not happy. Um, I feel like I, in an ideal world, I would kind of um, titrate uh, pressors while, like start pressors before they're getting fluids when they're frankly hypotensive. But realistically, by the time I get um, norepi going and, you know, we got pretty fast access. My, my ED is very, you know, well staffed. We got pharmacists around the clock. Um, the, e even then, like usually 
I'm still getting a liter or two in before I can really uh, get norepi in someone. Um, we've got phenylephrine, which will give for, you know, pairing intubation and like the, the frank, like, you know, uh, really sick patients. But I don't think this is someone I would really think about push dose pressure yet. Um, I think we've been talking a lot already. Now I've got the read with cholecystitis. Um, first thing I'm doing is hypotension, infectious source. I'm ordering antibiotics because that's what he really needs, antibiotics and source control. Um, so I want those antibiotics on board and I want surgery involved because that's what's going to actually fix them. Which antibiotics? Um, that depends. Uh, and I think the main answer is I can easily pick something. And I think one of the best answers is what we're using at our place. Um, our surgeons in our hospital tend to like Zosin for this stuff or Piptazo. Sorry, I try not to do the brand stuff because I'm a nerd. Um, so I would probably do Piptazo. Uh, I think something like Ceftriaxone Flagyl or Ceftriaxone Metronidazole, uh, is a good choice as well. Um, the, actually, no, this is a, you said, um, I don't know. I feel like we could have a 20 minute conversation about Piptazo versus uh, Amstelbactim. Uh, and I don't think it matters that much, but uh, upper belly, I'd probably actually, my first gut would, now that I think about it, is probably uh, Amstelbactim. But if he's sick and hypotensive, it's probably not worth uh, messing around. And Piptazo is probably a better choice. So uh, a patient like this, who you've given a couple of liters of fluid and has had kind of a so-so response, you probably will be starting norepinephrine. Yeah. What's the map now? Uh, just under 60. Yeah. Under, if he's still under 60 after two liters, I would keep doing fluids if there's not a good reason to stop. And I would start norepi at this point. We're also, I think, uh, where a lot of places are where we're totally fine doing peripheral pressors, especially if there's an endpoint, you know, in, in sight. The endpoint meaning surgery? Yeah. Antibiotics and surgery where we can actually fix the problem. Are there cases where you would not be comfortable with peripheral access? Um, I wouldn't say not comfortable. I would say like, Places where I'm thinking about getting lines in earlier are places where are, are situations where I'm there, you know, someone like pneumonia where source control is not going to fix it. And it's going to take a while to get the patient stabilized. And, you know, we know these patients are sick for days, not hours or a day. Um, those are the times where I'm thinking about lines earlier, I think. Um, also, obviously, vascular access issues, uh, you know, patient where, you know, they, they have one arm's already uh already not an option because of, uh, you know, mastectomy with, with lymph node dissection or, um, you know, a dialysis access or something like that. And where, uh, you know, especially patients who are uh, vascular paths where we may not be able to have good peripheral access reliable. I'm thinking more and more about central access. When you order your antibiotics, are you ordering a single dose or are you ordering them in a scheduled fashion? I order a single dose uh, because that's how we do things in my ED. Uh, we have, uh, one, it's just the way our epic setup. That's where the nurses see. They don't actually see repeat doses. Um, I don't know why, but also we have a good backup where our pharmacist, one of the big roles is, uh, is making sure we're getting the follow-up doses. Additionally, um, we've got a, a good system where when we do sign outs on patients who are sitting around, we've got a good culture of, of talking about, uh, antibiotic follow-up doses. So there's a pretty good safety net there. I will say, uh, one of the things that goes into my antibiotic choice is, do we have that good system for follow-up? Because uh, I think Brian Hayes put it really well a while ago. You know, one of the main reasons to do something like uh, Cefpim or, or Ceftriaxone metronidazole instead of um, instead of Piptazo is just, I'm not going to miss that second dose. Or if I do, there's very big problems. Okay. So you give general surgery a call. They come and take a look at the patient and they say, well, it looks like he probably needs surgery. Um, it's going to be a, a couple hours. Um, we're finishing a, another emergent case. Um, so, you know, get him resuscitated, get him admitted, and then we'll bring him to the OR. Um, where's this patient going to go? The ICU? Um, yeah. I mean, I think if they're hypotensive, yes. Um, and f honestly, if it's one of those situations where, uh, you know, there's no step down, my hospital does not, it does essentially not have step down. Um, we, uh, where, you know, pressors are, are a question, you know, can, you know, 
I would rather put in a line if that helps a patient who I think needs to go to the ICU be more black and white needing me in the ICU. But yes, I would want this patient in the ICU. Um, it, again, I, I think a lot of it depends on what your hospital can do and where patients can be comfortable, you know, where you've got adequate nursing and adequate services for what the patient needs. I don't think it's, it's black and white where patients go in different places. Um, but yeah, I would want this guy in the ICU. All right. Well, you get him packed off um, and you're kind of stretching and settling into your day here. And then your student comes back and says, well, that was fun. Um, but I got another one for you. This is an 85 year old female. Um, she has some diabetes, uh, dementia, lives in a skilled nursing facility where she's reported to be essentially nonverbal and, and wheelchair bound. Uh, but otherwise in her sort of usual state of health until today when the staff found her to be poorly responsive is how she came in. Uh, at triage, she had a temperature of 37.5, a heart rate of 100. Blood pressure was 100 over 50 with a MAP of 67. Uh, but she was only setting 90% on 100%, quote, 100% non-rebreather mask. Um, on his exam, she rouses to verbal stimulus uh, but was sleepy and was tachypnic and looking a little uncomfortable, breathing at about 30. What are your first thoughts here? I, I hear the number one question is goals of care. Uh, do we have advanced directives? Uh, do we know anything about what the patient would want or who would be able to make decisions for the patient if she can't make decisions for herself, which it sounds like she probably can't, and what's going to be the best thing for the patient? You know, we can do uh, whole big workup, whole, you know, all sorts of lines and tubes and stuff, diagnostic and supportive, supportive things, but the, the bottom line is what's going to be best for the patient. How are you going to figure that out? Uh, it depends. <laughs> um, you know, uh, basically asking everyone who's involved. Uh, realistically, the way you're describing this with me and a student and a sick patient, I would take the student aside first thing and say, look, everything you're going to do right now is going to be much more important than everything I do right now. And your goal is to figure out what the if there's advanced directives, uh, if there is a decision maker, uh, look through the chart, look through, you know, talk to EMS, talk to the nurses, call the nursing home, call family, everything, you know, don't stop until you find an answer. And I'm going to start doing the, the quote unquote medical stuff. But your job is more important than what I'm doing. And I'm being 100% serious right now. And I'm being 100% serious to you and I'm telling him that I'm being 100% serious. Like, like that's like, I would say it that way. Okay, so he's on it, but the uh, the pickings are slim. Um, EMS relates to you more or less what you get from the packet of paperwork from the facility, which is to say, not very much. Um, the patient is listed as being a full code there. There is a family contact listed who is a child, uh, but you call and you're not able to get through to them. These are tough situations. I mean, really, in my place, you know, we we see most of the people we get from facilities are people who are plugged into our system in one way or another. So I look through our DHR a little bit, uh, that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm not going to not do anything. You know, this is all in parallel with some basic stuff. And I think starting some kind of uh, low-hanging fruit, uh, you know, basically infectious sepsis workup, uh, supportive care things is reasonable. Um, the, you know, I'd probably do, you know, you know the bottom line is just because somebody – Let's say this patient was DNR uh, and, you know, didn't want advanced things, blah, blah, blah. That doesn't mean, you know, we don't treat a simple cystitis, right? Uh, you know, I would want, you know, you can get somebody, you know, some reasonable quality of life for a short period of time with, you know, a few days of antibiotics if you accurately diagnose pneumonia, UTI, et cetera. Um, that's kind of part of how I make myself feel better about doing some of the uh, basic things that we do. So I would, you know, do chest x-ray, UA, basic blood work, um, uh that kind of stuff while we're starting skin exams or a big D cube that's, that's infected and angry. Okay. So you, you put in for some kind of routine things and you, you go over to kind of look at the patient and you're standing there in the doorway looking at him at her. And, uh, you notice that, uh, she's not breathing all that well. She's pretty tachypnic and labored. And now she's sat in kind of in the high eighties wearing this non rebreather. 
And while you're standing there, the student comes back and says, you know, I was able to pull up some old records from here, and it looks like she's, you know, been admitted for other things. There's been discussions with the family, and they've been pretty adamant that they want her to be cared for as aggressively as possible. Yeah, I knew you were going to go with this. Um, <laughs> making it fun. Uh, so, you know, this is one of those things where we need to do what's best for the patient, right? Uh, I think... I don't, this is a patient where, honestly, right off the bat, I would say it, it doesn't sound like innovation is going to be a good thing for this patient. Um, I'm going to quote a great paper uh, that Kei Uichi and a bunch of uh, colleagues just published that of patients who are 65 and older in the ED, um, excluding trauma and cardiac arrest, the, uh, over a third of them die. Uh, in that index admission and the me, I think the, if I'm getting right, the median length of stay, uh, you know, until they die was three days. Um, that intubation is not helping those patients. You know, that does mean two thirds of them survive with an average length of stay of, I think, nine days. Um, sorry, I sound like a nerd, but I literally just read this. <laughs> uh, the, uh, and, uh, this might be a patient where I'd probably start, um, uh, non-invasive ventilation on, um, for two reasons. One is if we improve worker breathing, oxygenate, the patient does well, um, this can buy some time without committing them to a vent and, uh, and plastic for a while. Um, also, if we end up intubating the patient, um, and you know, there's a non-trivial chance that's going to happen just because uh, unfortunately that's the way things are a lot of the time, um, then, uh, then that gets the patient, you know, as, as optimized as possible, pre-oxygenation, et cetera, uh, for intubation. So your goal is to temporize while you continue to try to, what, uh, communicate with the family member? Yeah, communicate with family, uh, get the patient doing just better enough to not need to be intubated uh, or to get away with not intubating them. Um, I can't, I've, I've tweeted this before. I can't draw uh, on this without a video, but, uh, you know, basically I'll draw a little like bell curve and the meat and um, the the, let's see, the x-axis across the bottom is how good of a doctor you are, and the y-axis across the top is uh, what percentage of patients who are potentially intubatable you intubate. Um, in the center is uh, basically, you know, the meaty part of the curve. Everybody's intubating these obvious patients. You know, 60-year-old with pneumonia and no real comorbidities who's really sick gets intubated, right? There's, on the left side above the curve is the patients who don't get admitted or who don't get intubated who should have been intubated. Um, and on the right part of the curve is the patient who don't get intubated who it's better for everybody that we didn't intubate them. And I'd like to try to practice that. I'm not going to pretend that I, you know, I'm some sort of Superman who, uh, who solves all these problems on the fly and, and doesn't intubate patients who we all wish we couldn't. Um, and I'm sure I've been involved in lots of patients like this who I've regrettably intubated. Um, but I'd really like to try not to. So if we can, if we can buy time and potentially make the patient, you know, figure out, oh, is this pneumonia UTI, get the patient better, uh, with non-invasive antibiotics and some support. Great. Um, if I can talk to family about things like futility and goals of care and the really realistic part of the situation, um, and buy some time with non-invasive there. Great. Now, if you do intubate the patient, uh, because you're pushed to it just medically, do you feel like you've cross the Rubicon and the decision is made or there's a situation where you would extubate them? Um, I will say I, I don't, I don't have a hard rule that I will never extubate a patient in the ED, but I will say that I basically have never extubated a patient in the ED. <laughs> um, the, I, I'll say we, as a medical field, we, as the team who's taking care of the patient in this entire phase of care involved, including the ICU, et cetera, like, Yes, you'd consider extubating, but but that's a hard situation and a you know also technical aspects of a thing that I don't really do a lot, um, if at all. The um, one of the phrases I use is I'm not a bioethicist, but the bioethicists tell me that even though it seems really different, not intubating someone in the first place and taking the tube out later after you have more information or a different decision are ethically the same. 
Um, and it's, it's harder what to, to remove something than to not do something. But, uh, you know, like if I'm talking with one family member and there's other family members they need to deal with, I think that's, that's part of how I, I frame it. Like, look, if, if the bottom line is we can't make this hard decision right now, we can buy some time to, to rally the troops and make a harder decision later. All right. So you're, um, you're grappling with this dilemma. Um, what you end up doing to temporize a patient is you put them on some high flow nasal oxygen and that seems to improve her oxygenation. Um, you're, you're sort of in the same limbo as you move forward with a patient who's relatively stable on that, but you still haven't really made any final decisions. So you think, well, I have to admit the patient in the meantime, where is this patient going to be admitted to? Um, I would still probably admit this patient in ICU. I think a step down, if you have one might be better, uh, medical, I'm not. I don't know. Ideally, I think some medical floors could deal with this. But I've also worked in a lot of places with ICUs that deal with patients in this kind of situation where the patient, um, I don't know, I try to, I was actually just talking to residents about this the other day, where we, it's easy to think about the ICU as a patient, as a place where really sick patients go, you know, the intubated patient with lots of lines and things. Um, But ICUs are also just places where patients go where they need a lot of stuff done. Um, And I've certainly put patients in ICUs before where, you know, they're not intubated, they're at the end of life, they're getting good, aggressive palliative care, they're getting, you know, nursing services, they're getting, you know, labs and monitoring and stuff like that, that just can't happen on medical floor. Um, The downside of that coin is being in an ICU, it's, I certainly appreciate that there's like a lot of nudges there to do more uh, potentially curative versus palliative care. Um, and I'm sure I'm bungling all this in the, the phrasing of how I'm describing this stuff. I'm sorry, but I know those, those aren't, uh, opposing things, but, uh, but you know what I mean? Uh, it's just like, if you're in an ICU, the chance of somebody intubating you is a lot higher than if you're not in an ICU, I think. Okay. So you do admit the patient to the ICU and you get some kind of puzzled questions over the phone, but eventually they sort of get your, your drift. Um, but they're actually full. So the patient ends up stuck boarding in your ER for, um, a good several hours. What is your involvement with this patient during that time? Are you still taking care of them at all, a little bit, or are your hands are washed? And if there's issues, the nurses should call the ICU about it. Um, ideally, the latter, um, but realistically, even in places where the the upstairs teams are totally taking care of the patient, um, I'm there. Right? Uh, I'm closer. It's easier. The nurses know me. Um, and and uh, especially if there's something time sensitive, I'd be involved. And especially if it's something like this, where what I'm going to but you know, protect the patient from getting over medical treatment, um, then I'm kind of happy to be involved more. All right. So um, the patient eventually gets whisked off to the ICU, and then your student comes back with his third patient, and he says, "This is a 48 year old male now. Um, it's brought in by a, um, uh, an ambulance, and what EMS says was." He has a known history of alcohol use and cirrhosis, uh, according to family, quote, a heavy drinker, and was having about two days of melana um, when he started to look more sick and it was actually throwing up some blood. So they called for EMS. Um, In the field, uh, he was a febrile. He had a heart rate as high as about 140, which was sinus. Um, He was hypotensive even there down to about 80 over 40, a map of 53, they say. Uh, and he was auctioning well. And at that time, he was awake and kind of annoyed and, and had a benign abdomen. But they were bringing him in, and they were nearly in your parking lot um, when he started copiously vomiting blood and became altered. And they actually had to intubate him. So they kind of blow into your ER with this freshly intubated patient, um, kind of blood all over them. <laughs> and they park him in one year resuscitation rooms. Um, 
Now what? Uh, I mean, first of all, this is, you know, sick GI bleed are as sick as patients get. I'm in my like, you know, highest mode of sick patient. This is what's going on. And, you know, uh, I don't know, full on treatment mode here. Um, I Number one, anytime I get a patient with any sort of advanced airway in, uh, no judgment on anybody else. Uh, but, you know, trust but verify. And I put waveform and title on the end of the tube. Uh, make sure that is ventilating properly. Uh, that makes me very happy when I see a nice little yellow line go up and down. Um, this is what's the map right now? Well, so they have not even repeated their vitals yet, but they throw them on the monitor here, and his, his map is about 50. His heart rate is about 150. Okay. Uh, well, he is sick, uh, and I'm worried about that. Uh, basically, I'm going to try to get access, uh, good rapid or um, you know, peripheral access would be great with nice large bore IVs. Uh, I would, I mean, he's a, a coagulopathic patient with a GI bleed. Uh, that would uh, start with blood. Um, I mean, I think there's little institution variability on... Um, I, um, thinking about identifying coagulopathies, um, and, uh, basically thinking about, uh, you know, source control needs hemostasis. Uh, so going to pay a GI, uh, if we think it's upper, it's probably not helpful to have surgery involved. I think with GI bleeds, you know, I usually think a little bit about is worth getting IR involved. Um, especially if it's like 430, they might be going home soon. Um, get them involved sooner rather than later. Um, but, but upper GI bleed in liver patient, usually that's, that's just, uh, that's just GI who needs to be involved. Okay. Um, the nurses are doing their best, but all they can get you for IV access are two 24 gauges in the hands. And they don't, they're pretty sure one of them is not good. Yeah. So this is not good. Uh, and I would think a little bit about, you know, how quickly can I get a central line versus just doing an IO and probably just do an IO, especially if there's, I'm going to be totally realistic. If I, if it is basically me solo with a med student and I don't have like three residents to do lines and stuff, IO is going to be, uh, uh, faster for the patient and allow me to do other stuff. This is in the tibia? Uh, yeah, it depends. We usually do tibia. I do humeral sometimes. Um, there's so, some reasonable stuff that humerus might be a little faster and easier, even though it seems like it's not. Um, but either way, uh, there's a couple little things that help me guide what's going on. Um, you know, if they've got knee replacements and stuff, then uh, or, uh, then tibia is less good. Uh, if they, if um, but yeah, humerus works too. I kind of like humerus, I guess. I don't know. Either way, and and you'll use that for. A massive transfusion if need be? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's one of those things where it seems like blood shouldn't go in quickly into into an IO, into marrow, but like that's literally what marrow does. Like blood goes through it. You can pressure bag or, or level one trauma, you know, uh, rapid infuse through it really quickly. It may not be quite as fast as like a, he has a huge introducer sheath, but uh, it works pretty fast. Okay. So uh, you drill in one or two IOs, you start giving some blood. Um, who is your first call? GI? Yeah, first call is GI. Okay. They say, all right, um, I'll come in. Now what? Yeah. Uh, I mean, little stuff in parallel to this. Uh, this guy is intubated and sick, would want to do some sedation. Um, we've sent labs. Have we found any coagulopathy specifically? The INR is 1.6. Eh, that's not bad. Uh, platelet count is about 80. Okay. Uh, I mean, the way everywhere I've been with mass transfusion, there's like a list of what happens on paper in the protocol, and there's the actual order that stuff's available. Uh, so I would try to uh, get platelets first, if possible, you know, get red cells and platelets in as quickly as possible. Um, it's nice because neither of those need to be thawed. Now, the um, the GI resident turns up. It turns out he was uh, actually in the parking lot trying to go home. But um, he takes a look at the patient. He says, I mean, geez. Um, we can try to scope this guy, but I, I, I am not confident. Um, can you run him through a CTA and um, we'll see if there's something maybe IR can intervene on or at least localize the bleeding? I mean, that's generally 
I don't know. I don't. I don't find uh, CT is not a necessarily a helpful scan in a, or helpful diagnostic test in GI bleed. There's a guy with liver disease. Uh, that's you know that's going to be where the money is. I I would push to for the scope first. Okay. He says. I mean, okay. Um, it's probably going to be you know, half an hour, maybe an hour until my attending can get in here. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, we can try to get the scan going. I don't know. That's uh, that's just not the right answer though. Well, is it something you would do if nothing else is going to happen in the meantime? Yeah. I mean, it's not something I would dismiss out of hand. And I, I totally admit that there, there's, you know, there's only so many hells I can die on. And uh, especially if it's not, I don't know. I think one of the big things I think about when we're talking about stuff like uh, it couldn't hurt to do X, Y, or Z is well, what about the opportunity cost? You know, um, I'm glad we haven't talked about stuff like PPIs yet. Because, you know, if, if uh, I'm not sure that PPIs help or don't help in GI bleeds like this, I doubt that they do. But what I do know is that my nurse who's setting up a PPI drip is not giving blood, is not priming the level one transfuser, is not doing all that other stuff that needs to happen. Um, so, so that's so. You know, that's how I kind of prioritize it, deprioritize that kind of stuff. In this situation, we're like, we're getting the blood going. We've got access. We've got other stuff going. We've got the plan for the EGD. Then like, all right, everything else is going. Sure, we can scan them. Okay. So you have this kind of vision now of what's going to happen, which is maybe you're going to scan him, maybe not. Hopefully GI is going to scope him. Hopefully they can get control of his bleeding. If not, maybe something else will happen like IR or surgery or whatever. Presumably, this patient is eventually going to go to the ICU. Yeah. At what point are they going to leave your department and go there? Most of the time, the scope's going to happen first uh, and then go from the scope to the ICU. Um, I mean, again, that's hospital operations. I work at a big academic center. There's no patient who's going to ICU faster than they can go to a procedure place. <laughs> what if they are unable to get hemostasis through their EGD? Maybe that's the right time. Yeah, I'm there, and that, that's probably where IR should be involved too, I think. Um, but I mean, if you can't get hemostasis to the EG, there's not a lot of other good options. Okay. But you would perhaps send them directly to IR? I mean, they're not, they're not coming back to the ED from, from the GI lab, if that's what your question is. <laughs> that's a one-way door. All right. So the patient does eventually get scoped and then goes off to the ICU. And you say, well, that was enough Enough for me for one day. I think I'm going home now. Wait, sorry. Before uh, I do that, uh, I will say, you know, we can poo-poo all the, or I can poo-poo all the small molecule pharmacology. I'm glad we didn't talk about, uh, you know, PPIs or arctreotide uh, here. But uh, antibiotics actually apparently are helpful here, so I would order antibiotics here. Um, Something like ceftriaxone or... Exactly, yeah. Okay. Now now we can move on. I- <laughs> well, that's frankly enough for you. Um, you've, you've hit your quota of sick patients. Um, so you're reflecting on your, on your enjoyable shift. Um, and is... As we all kind of go off to our respective ICUs, what, what, if anything, would you like us to kind of keep in mind and understand about what you're doing down in the emergency department? Um, I mean, I think one of the one of the places where I think a lot of the um, I think misunderstandings or potential frictions happen between different departments or different specialties is uh, how we're approaching the patient from different perspectives and we're kind of answering different questions. Um, you know, like when I talk to a cardiologist. The question the cardiologist is almost always answering is, is this a patient I'm going to cath and when am I going to cath them if I'm going to? Um, the question I'm, I'm asking is, which bed is this patient going to? Are they going to the cath lab? Are they going to the CCU? Are they going to a medicine bed? Are they going home? You know, um, and, and I think sometimes like without anyone having any sort of bad intentions, like they're answering one question and I'm asking another question and that's where, where these things go. Um, and I think one of the big differences with, um, with ICUs and EDs is, or ICU docs and, and emergency docs is the time frame is very, very different. Um, and our two hours in ICU time is nothing. 
right? Like that's like barely part of your day. Um, and two hours in the ED, that's a whole nother patient I could see. That's a whole bunch of care I could do to a whole bunch of different patients. Um, it really makes a big difference there. Um, and again, it's not that ICU docs are bad people. Um, and some of them are, don't get me wrong. But uh, the uh, it's, it's, you know, we're just doing different stuff. And no matter what I do, even if we go on bypass or diversion, patients are still coming in. ICUs, you know, have the, this wonderful privilege, which they should, of, you know, at some point you're full of beds. Um, and that's just different. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the amount of, uh, control over the flow of patients and ability to, I don't know, take time in certain things is very, very different. I think like sometimes again, when it comes to time, oftentimes, you know, like I realistically, it's my residents talking to residents from other services, but like if they're talking to a surgery resident, I say, Hey, by the way, in that initial call, if this someone is someone who's clearly getting mid to them, ask them expressly because in their mind, like, yeah, of course the patient's getting mid to them and like they're on their list for tomorrow to round and all this other stuff to happen. But like until they say, Hey, we're admitting this patient and blah, blah, blah. Like I can't admit them or whatever. And like that, knowing that two hours earlier helps me out a lot in a lot of different ways because all these balls rolling. And so I think sometimes, you know, making sure the consultant knows that the question I want is the question I want and not the question they think I want or the question that they're answering. And, or, you know, and again, we both need our questions answered. This is a, my question is not more important than theirs, but I also want to be like, Hey, by the way, this patient the is you're admitting them, right? <laughs> In a much more polite way. So, so you have to, uh, kind of carefully guard how much you're doing because you, you, your ability to control how much work you have is, uh, limited. Yeah, exactly. That's a really good way to put it. And another thing is too, is just making sure that, um, you know, sometimes we, we like expect consultants to address my concerns when they, that may not be on the radar. Um, and you know, just being like, Hey, like, you know, I, you guys are admitting this together. Oh yeah, of course. We're like, great. I'm gonna throw that ordering. Cause it really helps me if I get the ball rolling on it. I think, you know, like you, you pointed out the difference, uh, between specialties sometimes is asking the different questions. It's also just not necessarily just under, not understanding um, what life is like, right? Those of us who have worked in the ED and the ICU kind of have an appreciation for both worlds. Uh, but a lot of, a lot of people don't really get what goes on in the ED and it's really easy to sort of second guess and Monday morning quarterback what goes on down there. But uh, the truth is like all three of these people came in, and I guess that last guy, you had a pretty good idea what was going on, but you know, most of the folks we see upstairs, we have the luxury of knowing what's going on um, as opposed to somebody who just walks in the door sick and has a bunch of undifferentiated stuff and not only sick, but you don't, you don't necessarily even know, like you said, is this somebody who needs to go to the ICU, the floor or to the, back to the house? Um, and so I think understanding that and appreciating that is a, is a big deal. Um, and like you said, the time difference in the t two hours in the ED is a lifetime. Um, when you've got a bunch of people waiting, uh, and other, and you're trying to juggle a million things. So, um, yeah, cause you're right. I mean that, not that we can't be busy in the ICU, but you know, it would not blow anyone's mind to spend, I don't know, two and a half hours placing a leisurely teaching line with an intern or something like that. Whereas that's, you know, it's like a lifetime for you. And I, I mean, how many patients are you typically following at any one time? Oh, an ED? Um, I don't know, probably 15 on a side. If, if 
you know, I don't know. I remember this reminds me of a, of a funny story. And again, this this isn't a uh, this is not a story about how I work harder to see more patients or do better than other specialties or anything like that. It's just how different things are different. Um, when I was a senior resident, there was a um, there's one night where just there were just a bunch of patients that were getting general surgery consults. It was just one of those things where like that just happened to be the flavor of the night. It was a bunch of you know their patients or patients with those problems, etc. And the um, there was a like I don't know like a second year or third year surgery resident who you know was just you know just had this like huge tsunami for most of work and it became this paradox of like we had so much work for him he couldn't do any of the work we had for him um, and just got like totally gridlocked and and you know um, like it sucks for this guy it was terrible right and at one point in the middle of the night I'm like hey I'm sorry uh, you know I need to follow up on these three patients I'm really sorry uh, I've got another consult for you I know you're busy we're busy everybody's busy and he's like yeah well you know and, and again this is not about him being a bad person he's like you know and he's like yeah well you know how many patients are you using tonight and I was like I don't know 20 <laughs> <laughs> And don't get me wrong, this is over an ADD. I'm sure half of those were, you know, not super sick patients and most of them weren't getting them in and all that stuff. But, you know, we're just dealing with different stuff. We're all doing different things. It's like sometimes I totally forget that surgeons like operate and do this crazy stuff in the operating room because like all I see from them is like, you know, my consult in the ED for my stupid stuff. I don't see them, you know, doing this amazing technical stuff in the place where they're doing the, you know, their primary work. Yeah, I, I I did a brief rotation in dermatology in school, and the that dermatologist would see like sixty patients in a day. But you know that's because he's not spending time doing CAT scans. On right. Them. I mean, he's got a very focused goal. So exactly. Yeah. No. I mean, there there was a really cool GI bleed patient I saw in residency, uh, and it was like this big mess, and and basically it was like somebody who had already been in the ET for a while, and everyone was involved. So we like we did this amazing acute resuscitation with you know like three lines and a, this great elegant intubation and mass transfusion, all this stuff happened. And like GI and the MICU team and a surgery team and everyone was watching. And like in one, some way I was like, wow, like they never see us do this work. This is so great. You know, it was like, like we usually don't get to show off in front of other services, right? They just see our crap. They see the crap we can't deal with. Yeah. I had a, I had an ED doc. Uh, I was following when I was in school and uh, I was talking, it was me and him and a general surgeon and the general surgeons talking about how, you know, no offense, no offense. He keeps saying that no, no offense, but you know, you guys, or like, uh, I can't remember the word he used. It wasn't gatekeepers, but you know, basically, you're deciding where you know is the patient going to go here, here, or here, and who do I call? And of course, the ED doc's sitting there, just kind of nodding his head politely, and the surgeon walks off, and he goes. So the thing is, that guy doesn't get that. For every patient I call him to admit, I send five patients home as I've evaluated them, and they don't need to see a surgeon today. Um, you know, and I think you're right. Like we don't always get to see you guys work because a lot of times you're, you're done doing your thing by the time we get there. Right. Yep. And, and yeah, I mean, that's a great point. I also want to be really clear. Like this goes in every direction. Nobody sees everybody else's, everybody else's denominator. Right. Like I, you know, I can complain about all the stuff that urgent care sent me, correct patients they sent me. Right. Like, that's another thing that I think I realized. Like, none of us think about the easy cases. None of us think about the, the slam dunk. Like, the surgeons don't care about the slam dunk college studies I send them. Like, right? Like, that's no skin off their back. They only know about the ones where it's like, oh, they're in a gray zone. And maybe they need a, 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 a height of scan. I don't know. Like, and the ED can't ever figure out those patients, right? Um, I mean, for me, one, one, of the, one of my favorite studies that showed this was, uh, you know, Every, not every e-doc, but a lot of e-docs were, we'd love to complain or make fun of everybody else about sending us the asymptomatic elevated blood pressures. Um, there's a great paper in JAM IM from a bunch of years ago that looked at how many patients in IM clinics actually met criteria for hypertensive urgency, you know, whatever you want to call it. 
and they send us fewer than 1% of the patients. You know, I'll get, you know, three in a shift one day, but like, you know, in my head is it's hard not to hit that tribal, like, ah, those stupid docs are sending us all these patients. We are not seeing the patients they're not sending us. Yeah, that's like a, a, a drop in the bucket for how it could be. <laughs> right. It's, it's like every now and then again, I hear about a direct admission. And it's like hard not to be like, oh, direct admissions, those even happen. It's like, well, of course I don't hear about direct admissions that happen. Like by definition, I don't hear about that. <laughs> yeah. So again, I think we all we all do this. We all have these like gut responses for stuff. I mean, same thing. I remember when I was in the CCU as a resident um, and I got a console from a floor uh, floor patient uh, or floor team about a patient who was admitted from the ED and their third opponent was positive. And my first gut was just like, oh no, the ED missed this. This looks so bad. And I was like, wait a minute. No, nobody missed anything. This is the system working. This is exactly what's supposed to happen. <laughs> Yeah, who who ordered those proponents? <laughs> uh, any final thoughts, Seth? Um, no, this is fun. Uh, I mean, I think it's it's you know one of the things that's been fun for me uh, when I started Gem and Network Open a couple of years ago was I kind of stopped thinking of myself as an ER doc and thinking of myself as just a physician. You know, I don't get to just do the emergency paper. I have to read the chemo stuff and the surgery stuff and and all this other stuff that uh you know. And I, I think it's it's so easy to kind of recede into our little tribes and to th- you know we're all busy, we're all working hard. Um, and it's, it's just, you know, we're, we're really all on the same team and all just trying to work in this, you know, horrible system trying to take care of patients. And uh, I don't know. I still think, I know, um, you know, sometimes pie in the sky and really hokey about it, but like we have this amazing privilege where, you know, I put on my pajamas, I go to work, I talk to people about their poop on the worst day of their life and get to help people. You know, I'm not just, you know, pushing numbers around on a spreadsheet. All right. Well, I think this has been a really good look at how you guys do things down in the emergency department uh, to the patients who we eventually end up seeing, as well as to some of the ones that we don't. Uh, So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you all for listening. And we will talk to you soon in a couple weeks.